according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn in your Bibles one more time, I believe for the last time, to John chapter 7. Not for the last time ever, I hope. You're, you're of course, free to turn to John 7 anytime you want in your own personal life. But for the last time in our present Life of Christ series... This is episode number one in the last Judean and Perean ministry of Jesus, the Feast of Tabernacles, which takes up the bulk of chapter 7. As you see on the screen, John chapter 7, verse 2, and verses 11 through 52. After having already told his brothers that he wasn't going to go, he said, you go on up, this, this is your time. He says he wasn't going, and then they went up, and he changed his mind. Either uh, <clears throat> changing it of his own motivation or subsequently being revealed from the father that he needed to be there and so uh, he either changed his mind or the father changed his mind whatever the case he went up and uh, in obedience to the father's will and had some bible classes to teach when it was about halfway point in verse 15 14 i'm sorry when it was now in the midst of the feast jesus went up into the temple and began to teach and this begins a series of Bible classes that he would teach one after another, after another, after another, culminating in uh, a bit of conflict. And that's what we're going to focus on here today. We uh, have covered at this point nine points of study. One week ago this morning we were in point nine where we gave you the subpoints A, B, C, and D. And as soon as I get this caught up to that, we will open with a word of prayer. There it is. All right. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure each one of us is not only in fellowship, that's a big part of it, but also in an attitude of humility to receive the word implanted. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that it is for us to assemble together. Father, we ask at this time that you would set aside distractions and take every thought captive in obedience to Christ Jesus. Father, fix our eyes firmly upon our Savior and we thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, in the outline, point nine, the last day of the feast was occasion for the free offer of living water. And this brought us through these verses, verses 37 through 44. Let's take a look at it. And then we'll be able to move on to 45 through 52 and bring the chapter to a close. Uh, John chapter 7 and verse 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come. Let him come to me and drink. Verse 38, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. All right. We've had four subpoints under this. and We went into a week ago, uh, the last day of the feast, uh, as given in Leviticus 23, we realize it was a week-long feast that comprised of a seven-day with the eighth-day finale. 
Leviticus 23.36, and this moved the emphasis from day seven to the eighth day. Significant that that's what the Feast of Tabernacles is all about. The Feast of Tabernacles is the one that points ahead to Second Advent. Feast of Tabernacles is the one that will have its complete fulfillment in the Millennial Kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now we, with hindsight, can look back and understand why an eighth day would take preeminence, why day eight would become significant. Because we are church-age believers who have already seen historically the move from day seven to day eight. Why it was in the Old Testament that believers worship on the Sabbath day, on the seventh day of the week. But following the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the eighth day, the first day of the week became significant. That's why we have Sunday as the Lord's Day. That's why we have our primary worship day as Christians in the, uh, on the eighth day, on the first day of the week. And uh, so we see the emphasis here. Secondly, Jesus frequently employed the metaphor of uh, drinking for the reality of believing. We don't want to confuse the metaphor for the reality, but the truth is they both communicate the same essential doctrine. The metaphor of drinking for the reality of believing. And John 7 is no different than what we've already seen in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well, or John chapter 6 with the uh, bread of heaven message, where eating and drinking were both combined in the... Uh, to communicate the reality of believing. You see it here in verse 37 and 38. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And in case you're fuzzy on what that metaphor is talking about, read the next verse. He who believes in me. So the, the, the combining of drinking and believing, as we said, comes up in chapter 4, comes up in chapter 6, comes up here as well. It's nothing new. And we should be uh, encouraged by the way this is reinforced again and again and again so far as we have it. Now, they didn't understand everything that he was teaching them here. Because it was pneumatological, that it was related to God the Holy Spirit. And these believers, these, in fact, a lot of who he was speaking here to were unbelievers, those that had not yet come, those that were invited to come. But even believers of this day and age are not going to have a developed, comprehensive study on God the Holy Spirit. Stop to consider, what would your pneumatology be if you were an Old Testament believer priest? Because very few people actually received God the Holy Spirit as a permanent indwelling feature of their lives. They would have understood the Spirit of God brooding over the surface of the deep. They would have understood the Spirit of God uh, in terms of God giving breath to man and man becoming a living soul. They would have understood the Spirit of God coming upon certain people, prophets or judges or uh, priests or those, but very rarely. And then the Spirit could depart again, as in Samson. The Spirit of God came upon him. He had great strength. The Spirit of God departed, see. They uh, would not have had our understanding of God the Holy Spirit because that was something new, not yet revealed. And this, this makes sense in a book like John where he's recording events before the church age, but they're actually, the book is not written until decades after the church age commences. And that's the case here. So when we get the explanation in verse 39... But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. What we enjoy today is the universal indwelling of God the Holy Spirit is only possible because God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is victorious and seated in his glorified victory at the right hand of God the Father. 
Prior to that taking place, the Holy Spirit could not function as a universal uh, indwelling influence in this world. That's what this verse is communicating here. And then finally, the crowd became divided. They became divided over Jesus' message. And what I think gets largely overlooked is the baggage that, they, that they're standing here with. They become divided primarily because of their doctrinal backgrounds. Verses 40 through 44. So some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Uh, and, and they had a background, a doctrinal background, that included some kind of teaching anyway, or some kind of exposure to Deuteronomy. And they knew that Jehovah had promised that he would lift up a prophet like unto Moses. And that prophet would have uh, impact in the Jewish nation. And so they uh, they get their, their minds around this Deuteronomy passage, and they have what they think is an understanding of that passage, and uh, they expect that the Christ is on the way, or that the prophet is on the way, and some of the group believes here, hey, this man we're looking at, this must be the prophet, the prophet that Moses spoke of. Others were saying, no, 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 you're wrong, it's not the prophet, this is the Christ. Now, they had their minds wrapped around other verses of Scripture. They diminished the passage about the prophet in Deuteronomy 18, and they said, no, no, we, uh, we're looking for the promised Messiah, and so forth. Now, they're both right, but they're both wrong, because yes, he's the prophet Moses spoke of, but he's also the Christ. They were one and the same person. And uh, in Old Testament times, they debated that. They discussed whether it was one person or two, whether the prophet was also the Christ, or whether they were two different people. Some, you know, felt that, you know, that coming prophet was not to be the Christ, but was to be the forerunner, was to be the herald. And others said, no, no, we think that herald is a third person. And so then there's the debate. Are there two people or three people that we're looking for? Are we looking for a prophet and a forerunner and a Christ? Are we looking for just a forerunner and a Christ? In which case, is the prophet the Christ, the same as the Christ? Or is the prophet the same as the, uh, as, as the forerunner? All right. So you can look at it in a lot of different ways, and we don't criticize them for not having it exactly locked in. We have the benefit of hindsight to look back and see how it happened. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So they have a, they have a grasp on Micah. They, they realize that the scripture spoke of Bethlehem and um, particularly Bethlehem Ephrathah. They even had the right Bethlehem pinpointed. And uh, so they've got their minds set on this. And this is what sparks the division. Because you have different camps, and each, I guess camp is the right word, I almost said party, um, but it's a political year, so let's stay away from the word party. You have different camps, and that's kind of a fitting word, because look at what they do. They find a verse, and they camp on it. Right? And that's their verse. And that's what they're going to hold to. And everybody else has to be wrong because they're right about that, see. And they, they get trapped into this either-or mentality that if we're camping on our verse, our verse is right, and you guys got to come over and, and join up with our verse. And so the, the people were camping in Deuteronomy said, no, he's the, he's the prophet, he's the prophet. He's not the Christ, he's the prophet. And this other group, they're, they're camping on their verses saying, no, no, he's the Christ. He's the Christ, he's not the prophet, he's the Christ. And uh, insisting on this either-or mentality instead of saying, you know what, rather than camping on one passage at the expense of these other ones, I believe all Scripture is God-breathed. That means this verse is true. That means this verse is true. 
either that or God's lying here or here or both. You've you got to accept that they're either both true or you really have no alternative if you believe that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. And that God is not the author of confusion and that it's impossible for God to lie and everything else. God's very nature, the essence of veracity, demands that all Scripture has to agree with Scripture. And every, every bit of it is absolutely true. So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Now, what I don't want you to lose track of in all of this, and I stressed it last week, I'll hit you again today, because maybe you didn't catch the drift last week, all right? You probably did. You're way ahead of me. But just in case, you realize that there were people with doctrine in verse 40, and they knew about the promise of the coming prophet. And then there were others with other realms of doctrine that knew about the Christ. And they had knowledge about the Christ. And then there's others that knew about Bethlehem. And they had knowledge about Bethlehem. So take everything there in verses 40 through 42, but then maybe circle them or whatever you do. Maybe you don't write in your Bibles. I don't know what you do. But just kind of make a note there with those three verses and then draw an arrow back up to verses 37 and 38. Because they're not saved. They have teaching. They have knowledge. But it's the unregenerate mind trying to utilize knowledge that they've accumulated through earthly methods. Because he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Jesus Christ is inviting them to come. And yet they have this knowledge. But we talk about some of the hardest evangelism targets you and I will ever face are those that think they're already there because they've got knowledge. And maybe they've got religion. These guys majored in religion. And uh, pick the religion, doesn't matter. It could be oftentimes maybe it's Roman Catholicism and they think that, hey, you know what, we're in the right church. They think they've got, they've got knowledge. They know a few religious terms. They know some verses. They know some, some of the lingo. But... Have they placed their faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work? Are they born again? Or are they trusting Rome? In what object has their confidence been placed? So they've got little uh, glimmers of information. And yet they are the individuals here that Jesus Christ says, if anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. All right. Now, all that being said, let's look at the aftermath. Point 10. The aftermath of this episode. This is kind of like the after-action report. The aftermath of this episode provides a remarkable insight into the adversary's minions. We actually get their thinking in this. We get the behind-the-scenes look at the Pharisees. Verses 45 through 52. The aftermath of this episode provides a remarkable insight into the adversary's minions. Verses 45 through 52. That's point 10. We're going to have four subpoints under this as we uh, break down these eight verses. The chapter really ends with verse 52. I realize many of our English Bibles have a verse 53, and there may be a footnote in there and a bracket 
that uh, encompasses chapter 7, 53, all the way through chapter 8 and verse 11. Starting next week, we will address this uh, pericope, the uh, pericope de adultera, the story of the adulterous woman from, uh, from John 8. We'll examine it on a text-critical basis and deal with it uh, accordingly. All right. Verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, that is, the Pharisees and chief priests said to the officers, Why did you not bring him? Earlier they had been sent out to arrest them. This is when their fear overcame their other fear. And finally, they had to issue the warrants to have him arrested. They were afraid to do that because uh, of the popularity with the crowds, but then they were afraid not to do it uh, because too many people were listening to him. And so one fear overpowers another fear, and they send their uh, their officers, the police officers here, to go affect the arrest. So in verse 45, uh, the officers report back, and, and they're empty-handed. They don't have uh, Jesus with them. So why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. We'll talk about the literal rendering of that, but never uh, has... An anthropos spoken in such a way. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? You blithering idiots. Don't tell me you're falling for this guy's uh, spiel. How can you be so stupid? Look at us. None of us are following this guy. Why are you so dumb? I'm reading a little bit into that, but you'll see when we uh, when we break this out. That's a preview of the coming uh, Bolander Study Bible. Yeah, that'll have some more fun words in there. So no one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? So it's interesting. Here is one of the Pharisees themselves who is starting to put some things together if he hasn't already done so, because way back in John chapter 3 is when Jesus told him that he had to believe. And so he's had, uh, he's had you know, four chapters to put things together. The better part of three years, two years to put stuff together. And the only word he injects here is just an attempt to maybe add a little dash of sanity. A little a little smidgen of, of reasonableness. Can you say, hey, wait a minute, can we at least follow some procedures on this? Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? I mean, how does a how does a court issue a ruling if all of the evidence has not yet been submitted? Is that, I mean, that's just not even normal. That's not logical. That's not judicial. And he's right. He's absolutely right. And he's speaking to them in language they understand. Well, they don't like what he has to say, so they get mad. In verse 52, they answered him, You're not also from Galilee, are you? What are you, some kind of Galilean? All right. We'd probably have some similar phrase today, but we'd have to swap out Galilean for something that we find insulting in our culture. All right, so pick whatever your favorite insult is and plug it in there, because this is this is this is ridicule. This is insulting. What are you, some kind of Galilean? Would be like 
you know, I, I pick on Kentucky a lot. When I'm not picking on France, I'm picking on Kentucky. Okay, France is my overseas punching bag, and Kentucky is my domestic punching bag. Just because everyone I've met from Kentucky was a little bit Kentucky. Yeah, they were kind of... Anyone here this morning from Kentucky? Am I, am I insulting anybody live, face-to-face? Okay. I'm surprised I don't get more email from Kentucky or France. Uh, that might be. In any event, the, the stereotypes are horrible, right? But you get a reputation, and you get kind of, and, and Kentucky has it, that they're just kind of country and backward and primitive and, 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 and that. And I've met an MP unit from the Kentucky National Guard. They served with us in Desert Storm. They, they shared our, our, uh, our log base, our logistical base there in Desert Storm, and they were Kentucky. They, they preferred not to wear their combat boots. They were much better off. They enjoyed being barefoot in the desert. I didn't understand it. There were some carpenters, though. Boy, by the time we left out of there, we had tents. They built the town. They were something. All right. So you are not also from Galilee, are you? What are you, a Galilean? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Remember, understand your isagogics, understand your history and geography. Jerusalem was the universe. If you are a, a religious leader, I mean, that's where the temple was built. That's where he chose for his name to dwell. Never mind the fact that the Shekinah glory hadn't been there for 500 years. This was still the territory. This is still the place of God's dwelling. This is still where those in charge dwell, and that's really what it's about. They're in charge, that's where they are, and so they're, they're the center of the universe. Galilee is overridden with Gentiles. There are significant, there's a significant Greek population in Galilee, significant Roman population in Galilee. There are Gentiles all over the place in Galilee. Uh, not to mention you've got to go through Samaria to get to Galilee. So it's just a, a, not a good place as far as they're concerned. Yes, there's Jews there. But they're kind of renegades because they ought to move to Jerusalem. What are they doing living there? Okay. So, let's deal with the details now. First of all, I keep saying this. Point A, cooperation between the chief priests and Pharisees was itself very noteworthy. The fact that they're teammates on this uh, deal is extraordinary. Cooperation between chief priests and Pharisees. The fact that they're working together on this. Normally, they wouldn't agree about much of anything. Other than, I guess, they, they, neither one of them liked Rome being in charge. Um, the, the Pharisees pretty much viewed the priesthood as corrupt. As uh, lackeys to the Herodians. That, by and large, if Herod wanted a new high priest, he was free to grab one and appoint one, or put one down, or remove him, put, put his own crony in there, whatever he wanted to do. Uh, did they have to be exactly Levitical? Herod didn't care. Uh, did they have to be exactly of ironic descent from the previous high priest? No, Herod didn't care. And in some cases, um, some, some very otherwise worthwhile Levites, uh, priests, who would have had um, eligibility for priestly service, uh, some of them weren't considered because they had family connections and political connections to the 
Hasmoneans that, that ruled the Jews before Herod came in charge. By the way, if you ever want to read some of these things, Josephus gives you some great information. Um, uh, First Maccabees gives you some great information. The, the history of the Jewish people in the Hasmonean era is, uh, is interesting material. Not scripture, not God-breathed, not inspired. But as far as factually accurate history goes, it's excellent material. And, and it's, it, if you, when you understand what happens in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, when you understand the Hasmonean era, it explains so much of the New Testament because it, it gives you the recognition of why we have Pharisees in the first place. How did they come to exist? And, um, and, and it also, I think, will help you to, to communicate with Jewish people to this day because uh, rabbinic Judaism looks back to the Hasmonean era as a golden age, as an as a amazing, beautiful time. They, the, the family of, of Judas Maccabeus uh, led that rebellion and broke free from uh, the, the Seleucid Greeks, broke free from Antiochus Epiphanes, and they won their independence, uh, at least short time until Rome came sweeping in. And um, they drove the idols out of the temple. They cleansed the temple. They, they uh, reestablished worship, everything. But the, the worst thing they did, I've told you this before, the worst thing they did was they put themselves on a throne. They established a priest-king function with these Levites that had no business sitting on a throne. And a group of Bible scholars rose up to say, this isn't right. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Jehovah made promises to David. It is a son of David that is to sit on the throne for all eternity. And this group of Bible students that uh, separated themselves in personal holiness, uh, the Hebrew uh, faras says to, to separate, the separated ones became the Pharisees. And they were the Bible students and the scholars. They were also great war heroes in that war for independence. Many of them laid down their lives and paid the ultimate battlefield sacrifice in the, uh, in the uh, war for independence against the Seleucid Greeks. And so these Pharisees were every bit correct in their doctrinal understanding that the, the priesthood, the sons of, by this time, Joseph, uh, Judas is, is dead and it's his sons that are taking turns on the throne. Um, they had no business on the, on the throne. The Hasmonean throne was a fraud had no business, was not sanctioned by Jehovah. And uh, so, so they were right about that, biblically speaking. As a matter of fact, um, God has not seen fit to reseat any Davidic son since Nebuchadnezzar vacated that Judean throne in, uh, in the Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C. In any event, so all throughout history we see the, the chief priests and the Pharisees being at odds with each other, competing with each other, backstabbing each other, doing what they can. And in some cases, the Sanhedrin was dominated by the priestly line, the Sadducee party. In other cases, the Pharisees had dominion, and it went back and forth. All right, so the fact that they're cooperating together is, uh, is noteworthy. They, they may not agree on a whole lot of things, but they do agree on two main items. First of all, Rome is bad. They don't want to be under Rome. But secondly... Jesus is bad. Because Jesus, you know, if he would have sided with one of them anyway, then he could have had at least half of their support. But then he would have been a part of their system. He was a part of neither system. You know, I think he would have had more like-mindedness with the Pharisees. 
just because he would have had a more literal interpretation approach to the scriptures. He would have had a more of what we would think of as a a conservative theology. So he would have had more commonality with the Pharisees, but uh, he wouldn't have, he couldn't swallow any of the legalism they used to control people's lives. Wanted no part of that. I was talking to a Jewish fellow. I'll never forget. He told me, he looked me right in the eye and said, what are you talking about? Jesus was a Pharisee. Oh, <laughs> and what Bible are you reading? All right. But that's some of the, 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 the slander that gets written against him is that, that he was a, a Pharisee rabbi of his day and blah, blah, blah. No, the Pharisees hate him. He was not counted as one of them. All right. Police officers. The police officer's testimony. Never before has a man spoken in this manner. Never before has a man spoken in this manner. There's a little bit of uh, text criticism in this verse. Some of the manuscripts have expanded explanations, follow-up phrases. Literally, never, Udapata, never, spoke. So, Udapata is never. Never spoke uh, adverb thusly or such a way, thisly, uh, a man. Never has a man spoken in this manner. In some of the manuscripts, uh, they get expanded to uh, as this man has spoken. They add uh, a follow-up phrase, as this anthropos has spoken. You don't need the expanded phrase to to uh, finish the thought as it's expressed here. But neither has an anthropos spoken as this. Now, they've had spirit and dwell prophets before, but not for not any writing prophets since Malachi. It's been 400 years since then. They had a spirit in, uh, indwelled prophet with John the Baptist, and that got everybody's attention. Um, but this is unique. Not only is it unique, it's insulting. You realize who he's speaking to when he says, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. They're, they're talking to Bible teachers. Right? And, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I remember I insulted my mother several times. And I didn't mean to. And I didn't know I was doing it. Until my dad made very clear that I was doing it. Because every time I came back from my friend's house, Ken Krause and his brother Darren Krause and, and, all, and all that, and um, came back, well, Mrs. Krause is, was an amazing cook. Absolutely amazing cook. And evidently, I would come home from a sleepover, whatever, hanging out at my friend's house, and had a tendency to, to uh, compliment Mrs. Krause for her cooking. But see, the problem was when you do that to your own mom, what are you saying? Yeah, yeah, kind of. Like, I can't wait to go back, you know, and, and you know, I'd be better living there. And yeah, It didn't come across that way, I don't think, and it certainly wasn't intended that way. But, yeah, Dad kind of clued me in saying, you know, just back off a little bit, would you? <laughs> or after dinner tonight, tell your mom it was a good meal or something like that, right? Let, her, let mom know. So here's these police officers. And they're coming back saying, man, you hear what he's saying? You heard this teaching? Never heard anything like this before. And how 
crushing is that to these prideful, these men whose entire existence is wrapped up about how they can compare themselves against themselves and who's the better speaker and who's the better scholar and who's the better... Um, you can just imagine the insulting nature of this here. And so their arrogance then gets reflected. Point C. The Pharisees' arrogance is reflected in several ways. Verses 47 through 49. I think all of the scorn... All of these insults are simply reflected, uh, reflecting the pride and arrogance that's in the Pharisee's heart. I'm going to give you three ways here in our subpoints one, two, and three. And all it is is arrogance. And and what I want to not only not only do I want to get these down in our study to understand historically the arrogance of the Pharisees and what it was and what Christ dealt with 2,000 years ago. But I want to learn these principles because Pharisee legalism exists today. And it can thrive in churches like ours where there's a lot of knowledge, where there's a lot of information. So here's item number one. They assume that anybody listening to Jesus is being led astray. That's their conclusion. That's our logic. You have not also been led astray by him, have you? The logic is that if anybody gives credibility to what he says, it's just being misled, being led astray. Perfect passive indicative of planao. Planao, to wander. Wandering around, lost. Or as a transitive verb, to cause somebody to wander, to lead them astray. Planao, P-L-A-N-A-O. So we get the word planet. The planets were the wanderers. No fixed guidance there. The Greek astronomers couldn't figure them out for the longest time. They said, what are these things? They just wander around. Stars they had figured out. They're looking up there and they see the stars. And they had a pattern. And they had constellations. And they had their courses. And they, they tracked them. And they, they knew where the stars were going to go every single night. But then these other stars, they had to give these other stars a special name. You know, they called them stars because they were little points of light in the sky at nighttime. But they said, you know what? These stars are different. They don't follow a fixed course. They wander. And so they called these other stars, they called them wanderers. So that's why we get the term planet from this. And later on we learn that they weren't stars. They weren't big balls of uh, fiery gas. They were actually planetary bodies. But anyway... Where, that's why the, the term planet and wanderer is uh, synonymous. So they assume that anybody listening to Jesus is being led astray. Modern day Phariseeism does the same thing. Categorical doctrinal Phariseeism does the same thing. If, uh, if a doctrinal believer gets in his attitude that anybody listening to a non-doctrinal pastor is being led astray, that's just arrogance. Absolute arrogance. Yeah, if you've got friends that are in a non-doctrinal church, they're in a Baptist church, they're in a whatever. Lutheran church, Methodist church. Yes, even the Methodist church. Okay, relax. <laughs> um, now, I get in trouble every time I do this, but um, even inferior teaching has value to an extent. Why? It's truth. That's right. It's the, 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 it's the, the, the value is undeniable because the intrinsic value of God's word itself is infinite. 
Absolutely infinite. So if perhaps the practices are less than ideal, and if perhaps the hermeneutic is, is, is despicable and sad, okay, and even if the, the oratory is melodramatic and, and flashy and theatrical and, and, and kind of phony and fake, even all of that, at the end of the day, you know what, this, this is still God-breathing profitable. It's still divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Even in the Roman church, where tradition tries to drown it out, the Word of God still gets through to people's soul. So let's not assume that anybody listening to somebody else is just automatically being led astray into some false doctrine or some, some deal there. If the Word of God is going forth, then... Uh, Let's not mock that. So we see an expression of their arrogance. Anybody listen to Jesus being led astray? What, you mean you listened to him? We didn't tell you to listen to him. We told you to arrest him. <laughs> you know? All right. The uh, second glimmer of arrogance here. They assume that solidarity among rulers and Pharisees is proof enough for the masses None of us have believed in him. As if that was a concluding argument. They assume that solidarity among rulers and Pharisees is proof enough. You don't have to think it through for yourself. In fact, you can't. And so don't waste your time. Don't bother. Just understand what we believe and do what we tell you to do. We believe he's a false teacher. We believe he leads people astray. We're not following him, so don't even consider it yourself. Just do what we tell you to do. It's arrogance. As I mentioned, it is noteworthy that they're in agreement. But it doesn't mean that they're in agreement over something correct. You can be in agreement over something that's a lie. You know, um, there's a lot of emphasis on this, too, as if consensus of scientific opinion is is all the evidence you need global warming for example you know the science is settled there's a consensus among scientists that this is a fact and so you can't even debate or discuss or consider that it's not a fact because solidarity among the rulers and pharisees among the the elite in the realm of of uh climatology all right. Anybody go to see that movie yet on the uh, evolution, on the, the Ben Stein movie? Good movie. All right. You know, it's interesting. They, um, I was reading a, an article about a month now, maybe a month ago, and uh, it went back to when Albert Einstein was first promoting some of his thoughts and theories and different things. And uh, he was criticized. Uh, the science of his day didn't like some of the things he was saying. And, uh, and they asked him, does this bother you? Because they, they presented a long list of scientists that disagreed with him. <laughs> kind of like they do today. Everybody just, you know, choose a side who comes up the longer list and, and there you go, as if that's how science works, right? And they, uh, they, they had a very impressive list of, of scientists in that era. And, uh, they, uh, they asked him, they said, does that bother you? 
Does that bother you that so many scientists disagree with your view? Did I tell you this story already? Sounds familiar. And he says, no, it doesn't bother me. Because you can have any number, an infinite number of people disagree with me. That's fine. It only takes one to disprove me. No matter how many disagree, it only takes one to disprove me. And so he threw it back at them and said, now disprove the science. And it's interesting. And I think, you know, if, if, if a scientist came forward and disproved it, he'd have been fine with that. Because that's what the science does. You prove it, you disprove it, move on. Don't, don't hold to something that's wrong just because it's your view. If it can be disproven, then it's disproven and you, you move, move beyond that. All right. So this is the second realm of arrogance, assuming the solidarity among rulers and Pharisees, as if conventional wisdom decides everything. Just go with what the experts tell you. <laughs> well, what if they're wrong? As is in the case here. I mean, that's the world we live in. Remember, the broad is the path that leads to destruction, and many there are that go there too. Narrow is the path, and, and straight is the way that leads to life, and few there are that find that. The, uh, the majority, I think we're always going to be in the minority. I think regenerate will always be minority compared to uh, unregenerate. And even amongst the regenerate, I believe that disciples, those who uh, occupy with the Word of God, abide in His Word, I think that abiding in the Word disciples will always be the minority compared to the non-abiding, non-disciple, regenerate world. Third area of arrogance. They scornfully despise the crowd. They call it this crowd. This crowd. They call them ignorant of the law. Mosaic law ignoramuses. I just wanted to use the word ignoramus on a slide. I've never done that before. Point three. They scornfully despise this crowd, Mosaic law ignoramuses, as accursed. This crowd. They called them a bunch of Mosaic law ignoramuses. They're ignorant. They don't know anything. This crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Bringing in the uh, arguments of Deuteronomy to back them up on that. The language is here insulting, but this crowd, this crowd, which does not know the law. Remember, these guys know the law. These guys have knowledge. What does knowledge do? Puffs up. That's right. Knowledge minus love. Love edifies. All right. Hold your finger there. Let's look at some of these. Deuteronomy. They're both uh, pretty close together. The recitation of the blessings and the cursings. And um, you'll note here in chapter 27, there's a whole ton of cursings. Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, Benjamin. For the curse that you shall stand on Mount Ebal. Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. So half of them stood on Mount Gerizim, half of them stood on Mount Ebal. By the way, this is why the... The Samaritans then chose Mount Gerizim for their holy mountain. They said, nope, Mount Gerizim is the mountain of blessing. And they uh, disputed Mount Zion. And they said, no, no, our, our worship center, our temple has to be here on Mount Gerizim. 
and other things. All right. So here are the curses. Verse 15, cursed. Verse 16, cursed. All the way down. Cursed, 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 cursed. Okay. And um, you, know, you can read that if you like. But it ends up with verse 26. Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And it's interesting. They misapply this verse. This verse says you're not cursed if you don't know the law. It says you're cursed if you don't do the law. And the accountability of knowing but not doing is where the curse really falls in. So that when the Pharisees were scornful of the crowd for not knowing the law and called them accursed, they were really convicting themselves because they knew the law, but they weren't doing the law. As Jesus told them previously, none of you does the law. You seek to kill me. All right. Uh, next chapter over, chapter 28, verse 15. It shall come about, if you do not obey the Lord your God, to observe, to do, notice again, to do, all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you, and then cursed shall you be in all the cursings. All right. So they call the crowd accursed. They call the crowd accursed because... They say they don't know the law. They're going to they're going to challenge their knowledge. Now, aparatos is interesting. E p a r a t o s. Aparatos, number nineteen forty four. It's only used here. Uh, the whole family of words is interesting. Diceman has a neat article on it, and we've been talking about Diceman in the third year Greek class here lately. Uh, we got a few minutes. I want to make sure I don't run out of time and not get uh, point D in. Adolf Deisman, back in the uh, late 1900s, early 20th century, um, did some amazing studies on the Greek papyri and found among the business records of the day, among the tax receipts, among the contracts, among the, the bills of sale, among personal diaries and journals. For, for many, many years, uh, New Testament Greek was ridiculed by scholars because scholars held it up against classical Greek. They held it up against literary koine. They held it up against these, these vast bodies of literature and the poets and the dramatists and the philosophers uh, the, the epic uh, writings of Homer and all the rest. And they said this New Testament Greek from the Septuagint, the New Testament, is just primitive and it's goofy and it's inferior. And, and they make up all these words. They kind of get this religious mumbo-jumbo in there. And they make up words that aren't found in, in classical Greek. And it was kind of the dismissive, scornful view, very much a, uh, a pharisaical view of, uh, of different things. And uh, But what Deisman did, Deisman actually discovered in the papyri, papyrus documents of, of the 1st century, 2nd century A.D., contemporary with the New Testament, actually found, he said, wait a minute, let's stop looking at bodies of literature and poets and all this other stuff. Let's look at documents that were written by ordinary people, normal people, 
not the highfalutin uh, ivory towers of academia people, but normal man on the street kind of people. And they had they found thousands and thousands of these. As I said, tax receipts, invoices, bills of sale, uh, contracts, arrest warrants, uh, any number of, of documents of the day, personal diaries, letters from parents to children, things like that. And they found that there was nothing make-believe or made up or inferior of the Koine Greek of the New Testament. The Koine Greek of the New Testament was the language of the man on the street, which is just a beautiful thing. All right, so under Eparitas, Dysman made some observations. The classical Greek for cursed is eratos, eparitas, or kateratos. In the Septuagint, we find kateratos, rarely, but a fourth word, epi. Kat eratos occurs frequently. As it was met with elsewhere, only in the New Testament, it has been reckoned among the words that are only biblical and ecclesiastical. In other words, this was one of those words that the scholars said, yeah, see, this New Testament Greek is kind of phony, religious, um, you know, Bible Greek, but not real Greek. As though Christianity had any need to plume itself on the possession of this special word. Then he goes on, but why the secular words were not sufficient and how far a biblical distinction was secured by the epi prefixed, these questions have never been raised. You know, if you're going to mock and ridicule why they use the epi kata eratos, then ask yourself why. Greek had plenty of secular words that talk about curses. The Greek gods were constantly cursing humans and each other and whatever else and the the demons the spirits were there were curses all over greek mythology the greek language had plenty of words for curses so why when god inspired the bible did he was were one of those uh profane words those pagan words why were they not sufficient why intensify with an epi in front of your kateratos these questions have never been raised from the point of view of historical grammar, the correct thing would have been to assume epikateraamai uh, and epikaratos to be instances of those double compounds or what he calls here decomposites. To say, actually, it's not goofy for this to take place. As the language progressed, it became very common for compounds to become recompounded. And even some of the Greek uh, comedy writers poked fun of their own language that way, that their language was getting longer and longer uh, the further down the, the road you went, that they just seemed to add compounds on top of words and end up with longer and longer and longer words through the, through the centuries. So, um, from the point of view of historical grammar, the correct thing would have been to assume that epikataraamai and epikataratos uh, to be instances of those double compounds or decomposites which become more and more common in later Greek and to regard epi, therefore, as a late Greek, not a biblical feature. So it's not, it's not simply limited to the Bible, but a feature of the language getting older and a feature of late Greek. We are therefore not surprised to find the adjective used in a pagan inscription from, U- from uh, Yubia, so, guess what? It's not unique to the Bible. Pagans are using it, too. Of the 2nd century A.D. The inscription must be pagan, for the Aranyes, Charis, and Hagea are named in it as goddesses. Uh, if it should be thought on account of the Septuagint formula occurring in this inscription, 
that Septuagint influence might account for Epikataratas, we can refer to a pagan inscription from Halicarnassus of the 2nd or 3rd century AD, and now they have it in the British Museum. So point of fact is that they're finding these words among the secular authors that are contemporary with the New Testament being written, and that these words were not simply made up for a biblical, uh, a biblical framework. So Diceman had a neat article on that. They scornfully despise this crowd, Mosaic Law ignoramuses, as accursed. You know, again, there is the tendency for modern-day Pharisaism in our church, in our time, in our attitude. If you know a brother or a sister that maybe does not have the doctrine you have, don't dismiss them as being accursed. Or dismiss them because they don't have the doctrine you have. Maybe they don't. But maybe they have doctrine you don't have. (laughs) Or maybe... Maybe they have a thimble full of doctrine, but they use it. They use what they have, and they use it a lot better than than I use mine. They use their thimble a whole lot better than I use my whatever quantity I think I have. See, point D then. Nicodemus speaks up, and he speaks up in God the Father's perfect timing. Because they had just said, look, none of us have listened to this guy. No Pharisee has gone to this guy. And Nicodemus was standing right there. said, um, excuse me. I'm a Pharisee. I've listened to him. All right. Now, he went by night. So whether they knew he was listening to him or not, it's hard. We, we, we can't say one way or the other. They may have uh, been ignorant of his the time he spent with them. But there were other Pharisees that had him over for meals and insulted him by not washing his feet and things like that. So there were Pharisees that that had associations with him. But none had become followers. None had become disciples. None gave up their day jobs in order to follow after Jesus and uh, do the Galilean circuit. All right. Which for two years, two and a half years, Jesus had been pursuing. So Nicodemus speaks up in God the Father's perfect time. And I just love this because it comes on the heels of their statement that uh, not one of the uh, rulers or the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? Well, just four chapters ago, a Pharisee was told that uh, he who believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So verse 50, Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, Not just a Pharisee, but a ruler of the Jews. Not only was he a part of the Pharisee party, but he actually had a vote, a ruling vote on a seat on the Sanhedrin. Said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing. Does it? Okay. Now, when you tack that does it on the end, you're communicating a very skeptical question where there's only one way to answer this. You have to answer, yes, Nicodemus, you're right. Our law does not judge a man until we gather the evidence. Now, you know, we're doing that, but our law doesn't. We, you know, if you make up your mind before the facts are heard, you're not rendering judgment. You are, uh, you are expressing your opinion under the color of rendering judgment. But your mind was made up before any evidence came in. All right. Anybody following the FLDS uh, child abduction uh, News, I'm following that very closely. I'm, I'm wondering, is, is this judge interested in evidence? 
Or was her mind made up before the, before the hearings actually began? Something I'm watching with considerable interest. Okay. Some issues under this. He rightly stipulates that they cannot condemn him without a biblical examination. So when he speaks up, he's simply speaking the truth in love. And he goes back to the law. He takes it back to the Word of God. What does the Word of God say? He rightly stipulates that they cannot condemn him without a biblical examination. And I'm running out of time, unfortunately. Let's uh, grab Deuteronomy here. Deuteronomy 1, 16 and 17. Remember, one of God's attributes is that he is absolute justice. That's his nature. And so any, any human expression of injustice is an attack on God's essence. Just as God is life. And, and when you take the life of man, you're attacking the very nature of God as man is made in the image of God. Well, injustice is an attack on the justice of God. It's like any lie is an attack on the truth of God. That's why lying is equated with murder. It's an attack on God's essence. Same thing with injustice. So Deuteronomy 1.16, Then I charge your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your fellow countrymen and judge righteously between a man and his fellow countrymen or the alien who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. It's an attack on the very justice of God. You shall hear the small and the great alike. So there's no uh, double standard in justice. If the man's important in the community, he gets the same standard as somebody that's insignificant in the community. The small and the great alike. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. That The case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. Too hard for you meaning... Uh, not too hard for you to render judgment, but too hard for you to maintain objectivity. How about that? All right. So the idea of condemning a man without a biblical examination violates the the tenor of the law itself. And Nicodemus is is right on target when he stipulates this. Secondly, they, they can't answer his logic. His peers can only impugn his upbringing and lie about the Scriptures. His peers can only impugn his upbringing. We don't know where Nicodemus was from. Neither do they, or they don't care. They just ask, you're not also from Galilee, are you? His peers can only impugn his upbringing. I mean, we do the same thing today. Not you and I, of course, but I say we. Human beings in the 21st century do the same thing today. If they want to be insulting, if they want to dismiss somebody scornfully or ridicule them or cut them down, where are you from? Right? Oh, well, that explains it. Right. Because you're from wherever. How hideous is that? As if somehow the geography of your birth... And your parentage limits who you are for the, the entirety of your life. How insane is that? Especially in this country. There's never been a country in the history of the world where 
Um, you can be born in one set of circumstances and rise above any of that. So they, all they can do is impugn his upbringing and lie about the scriptures. This is a bold-faced lie. Search the scriptures and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Well, hello. Um, Deuteronomy 18.15 promises that, Lo, the Lord will lift up a prophet like unto me. And guess what? It doesn't say where he's coming from. <laughs> so, it doesn't say he's coming from Jerusalem. It doesn't say he's coming from Galilee. It doesn't say he's coming from Rome. It doesn't say he's coming from the moon. You know what? It just doesn't say. And so to say that, you know, search the scriptures, see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Well, the scripture doesn't say where he's coming from. Second Kings fourteen twenty five. You can read there and find out that Jonah the prophet was from Gath Hefer, which was a village of Galilee. Um, Isaiah nine one mentions Galilee of the Gentiles, the light shall shine forth from you. And Nahum one one, Nahum comes from Galilee as well, his village. In fact, even Capernaum. In Galilee, on the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum is Aramaic for village of Nahum. All right. So Jesus spent quite a bit of time in Capernaum, village of Nahum. But no, no, no prophet comes out of Galilee. Why? Because we said so. That's why. Do what we say. Don't think about it. And then finally, history will repeat itself again. In Acts chapter 5, when Gamaliel attempts to inject rational thought into an irrational mob. Acts chapter 5, in this case it's Peter and John. And the Sanhedrin wants to shut them up. And Gamaliel actually steps up and has some wisdom. Great wisdom. He's an unbeliever. He's died and went to hell. But he at least has some secular wisdom here to say, let's not get all worked up over these guys. All right. Now, you know, let me let me I'm going to close in prayer here in a minute. Let me retract what I said a moment ago. Gamaliel may not be in hell. Gamaliel was old enough that he may very well have been an Old Testament believer looking forward to the coming Christ. That Gamaliel may have been born again by grace through faith, anticipating that Jehovah Elohim, the Lord God of Israel, was sending a kinsman redeemer to deliver, to crush the serpent's head and deliver him from his sins. Of course, during the time of Jesus' incarnation, he did not become a follower of Jesus Christ. So let me retract what I said. We'll find out when we get there whether Gamaliel's in heaven or Gamaliel's in hell. In any event, when you attempt to inject rational thought into an irrational mob, what are you doing? You're absolutely wasting your time. Totally wasting your time. You want to talk about global warming with a uh, global warming crusader? Good luck. Because you're going to approach it rationally. And they're approaching it religiously. Emotionally. I find, um, you know, there's, there's things you can't talk about gender issues with a hyperfeminist. Forget it. You can't talk uh, about race relations with a hyper-sensitive uh, racial a person there. It's, it's, it's emotional. Absolutely emotional. And so, if, you're, if, if somebody's irrational and you try to inject some rationality, it's, it's oil and water. It's just not going to mix. See? That's my wife. <laughs> oil and water. Don't mix. All right.
I am four minutes long. So uh, we'll make it up to you at some point. Maybe. Somehow. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this study. Father, we, uh, we want to learn these lessons. We see all this arrogance. We see the, uh, the seething hatred. And pride leads to arrogance and leads to hatred. The anger, the murder, ultimately nailing our Savior to the cross. And yet so many of these fundamental attitudes are attitudes that can creep into our own thinking because knowledge does puff up. And Father, uh, I pray that, that believers here in this assembly will be equipped with the operational functions of faith, hope, and love and that that operational function of love will prevent that knowledge from puffing up. That with our knowledge combined with love, Father, we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work of service. Thank you, Father, for all your faithfulness in our lives day by day. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.